0: Good morning. My fondest childhood memories all seem to revolve around eating food. My family is what you would call a food family. That is, everything that we did was based around meals and cooking. They were central to us and how we lived our lives. Some of the best memories I have of being a kid take place in the kitchens where my dad worked, or sitting on my grandma's counter watching her make blueberry pancakes. Or they take place on holidays where I would watch my grandmother set the large oval table in the dining room with crystal and china, and as it got closer to the meal, the food would begin to heap up. Now, we didn't get to sit there. We had another table (laughs) that was close by, was a little smaller, not so much wine, my cousins and I and my sister would gather around that table. And it was there that I began to learn about what it meant to be invited, to be invited into a family, to become part of a tribe, to become part of a community. And the worst punishment that you could think of was to be sent away from that table to go eat by yourself in the kitchen if you got in trouble. Because the undeniable truth is that to share a meal is to be invited, to be invited into community, to family, into a group of friends. And the flip side of that is that to be excluded from a meal is to be left disconnected from family and friends and community. Who we break bread with says a great deal about who we are as people. Right before Simon invites Jesus over to dinner, he would have heard Jesus having a discussion with a large group of Pharisees. They had gathered together to watch him perform different kinds of healings, and they had begun to grumble. And Jesus looks at them, and he basically says, no one can make you happy. John came as an ascetic. He neither ate nor drank with anyone. He lived out in the wilderness, and you didn't like him. Yet I come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Simon must have wondered what kind of teacher and prophet Jesus was. Now, we don't know what was going through his mind. Perhaps he invited Jesus over because he wanted to show him how he should be acting. How a righteous teacher really had a meal. Or perhaps he invited him over because he wanted to have a discussion and a debate about what righteousness was, about what holiness was. The way Luke describes a meal, that's what we tend to think. He describes it in the same way that anyone from that time and culture would have understood a meal that was designed to be a debate. Men would come and gather around a U-shaped table. They'd sit low to the floor, reclining to their side, their legs back and out beside them. And they would begin to discuss philosophy and religion and life. But these dinners weren't just for that. They were a way for the host of the dinner to show their status and their righteousness. Often during this time, these outdoor dining rooms were visible from the street so that the riffraff could see the party that they were clearly not invited to, where all of the exclusive people were dining. Maybe you can have a flashback with me to middle school or high school where there was always that one table where all the popular kids sat. And everybody knew it. Everyone knew that those were the people that were in charge. And if you got an invitation to sit at that table, you felt great. You felt like you'd finally made it. You had been accepted. But woe to anyone who tried to approach that table and sit without that invitation. To do so was to most likely bring a heap of judgment and scorn and embarrassment upon yourself. This is the same kind of atmosphere of the party that Simon is throwing. This is not an open invitation. And yet as Jesus and the others take their seat and begin their meal, an outsider slowly enters into the room. And at first, no one pays attention to this woman holding a jar as she creeps forward. Now, most likely she had caught sight of Jesus somewhere in the city. We know he's been there for a few days. He was healing a servant without ever going to a house. He raised a child from the dead. So perhaps she's been following him and working up her courage. Or maybe she's just heard about this man who forgives sins, who brings the dead back to life, and she knows she has to see him. Either way, all we know is that she must encounter Jesus. And it's not until she's standing directly behind Jesus in that room that people begin to notice And I imagine that the loud conversation slowly began to peter out as the whole room went silent, staring and waiting to see what Jesus would do. Because the people of the town, it turns out, know this woman. Luke wants to make sure that we understand that. She is a known sinner in her hometown. We don't know what her sin was. A lot of people assume it was a form of prostitution, but we really don't have a way of knowing. All we know is that whatever sin that she was a part of was very public and highly shameful. And so this woman who is not invited to many dinners or invited to any dinners walks into the room. She's one who is excluded. She's an outsider. She personifies everything that is unclean in Jewish culture and religion. And it's this woman who decides to enter into the home of one who personifies all that is holy and clean and righteous. And the whole room is holding its breath. And in the face of the obvious disapproval and revulsion, the woman kneels down at Jesus' feet and she begins to sob. And she reaches up and she lets down her hair. An act that was as intimate and private in that culture as a woman going topless in ours is. And she grabs Jesus' feet and she begins to rub them. Another act that seems seen as almost erotic. As though she's confirming every inch of speculation about her. And as she leans over his feet and she cries, she begins to wipe away the dirt and the dust with her tears and her hair, and she lowers her lips to those same feet and she kisses them. And we avert our eyes because the intimacy is so startling and so embarrassing for us. And she seals it all by pouring out this expensive perfumed oil from her jar On to Jesus. In the face of such an embarrassing show, Simon can no longer view Jesus as a teacher and a prophet. He thinks that no one of righteousness and standing would ever let such a woman like her touch him. And we are so much more like Simon than we would ever want to admit you and I. It's hard for us, too, to look that kind of intimacy and vulnerability in the face and not be embarrassed by it. We like order and decency. We are Presbyterians. If the woman had to be forgiven, she should have waited until the right time when Jesus was in private and gone to him in a respectable fashion and asked for forgiveness. I want you to look around the room today. And I want you to ask yourself, where are the people that you would be embarrassed to invite to dinner? My guess is you probably don't see that many. The lack of their presence is not something to be proud of. Because it means that we have created a space that is more about us and our comfort than it is about serving the kingdom of God. When we look around this room, where are the people who are poor and mentally ill and diseased and suffering from addiction? What kind of table have we created where they don't feel welcome here? If a person walked in right now, through those doors, and came up, to the front of this chancel, came up to this table, if they were dirty and smelled of who-know-what and walked up to me and asked me to bless them and pray with them and give them a hug at this moment, how would we feel? Would we feel uncomfortable? Would we feel bothered, irritated that this person had dared to interrupt our service, our worship, our ritual? What are we to do with a Jesus who has no time for our morality or propriety or our discomfort? What are we to do with a God who loves so extravagantly, so freely, so intimately and messy? And as Simon sits there and he silently judges the woman and Jesus, Jesus knows what he's thinking. Just as Jesus knows the heart of the woman at his feet, he knows the heart of Simon. And so he asks him a simple question. Who loves more? The one who has been forgiven much or the one who's been forgiven little? It is a question that even Simon can't mess up. And then he looks at Simon again and he reminds him that for all his self-righteousness, for all his posturing, that Simon has failed at one of the most basic, fundamental aspects of being a Jewish male in this time period. He has failed to offer the traditional and expected hospitality to the guests who have entered his home. There were no water for Jesus' feet. There was no kiss of welcome, no oil of anointing or blessing. He has failed to act as any host should. And yet this woman, this woman of no consequence, with no home of her own and no place at this table, instead has offered those to Jesus. And it's here that we find and remember that hospitality is not a committee, it is not a buzzword, it is an act. It is an act of love and grace. To be hospitable to others is to offer them welcome and belonging and a place at the table, and it is to draw near, perhaps embarrassingly close to others In our current culture, we are seeing a trend towards the monetization and commercialization of hospitality. We are far more likely to meet people out to eat or for a cup of coffee somewhere than we are to ever invite them into our homes. Because inviting someone into our homes is in itself an act of intimacy. Messy and scary because we risk letting other people see that our lives are perhaps not as clean and as orderly and as together as we'd like them to appear. It's one thing to meet someone for coffee at Starbucks. It's another to invite them into a place that implies a relationship deep enough to have them in your home. But the cross itself, the way of the cross, is one of hospitality. It is of Jesus identifying with you and I in totality. And it is embarrassing and messy and human. The love and the grace of God is found in a naked and sweaty and bleeding body. And it is found in the embracing of prostitutes and derelicts and the sick and the poor. Look, a glutton and a drunk. He's friends with tax collectors and sinners. Those are the ones, though, that know just how much they've been forgiven. The thief on the cross next to Jesus knows his guilt, and therefore he knows the vastness of God's grace in that moment. The woman at his feet knows she's fallen short of the mark. She knows how far off the map she's gone, and so her response is appropriately generous to Jesus. But Simon and the other Pharisees are blinded to their own need. They can't see their own sickness, and so we see their response. It is a lack of even basic hospitality. And it can be so hard to see the depth of need in ourselves because we are experts at lying to ourselves. We lie to ourselves better than we lie to anybody else. And we end up missing out on the overwhelming grace of God because we never know we need it. The old truth is a profound truth that the eyes are a window to a person's soul. Because how we see others is a reflection of the health of our own soul. It reveals whether our soul is spacious or cramped, judgmental or compassionate, hospitable or critical. When Simon looks at the woman and Jesus and he can only see their faults and their sins and their failure, we learn far more about Simon than we ever do about the woman and Jesus. And when we look at other people and we can only see their sins and their faults and all the things that are wrong with them, we learn far more about the state of our own souls than we do about theirs. It's tempting that when we are invited to a meal with Jesus, we forget who actually picks up the check. We start to think that it's our meal, that we're the ones paying for it, that we have a right to dictate who is invited and who is not and what they should eat and how they should act. And we become like Simon, thinking the host, all the while missing the very basic call that we should be like the sinful woman and know that it is Jesus who is writing that check. Jesus who paid the price. Jesus who bears the cost that we could not possibly bear. Brennan Manning tells a story about a man who went to his doctor. He had had a horrible headache for a very long time. He went to his doctor and said, Doctor, can you give me anything for it? The doctor said, well, Let me ask you a few questions first. I said, all right. First, tell me, do you drink liquor? Liquor, said the man indignantly. I never touch the filthy stuff. Okay, how about smoking? I think smoking's disgusting. I'd never touched tobacco in my life. The doctor continued, now I'm embarrassed to ask this, but you know some men Do you run around at night? I am in bed by 10 p.m. at the latest every evening. What do you take me for? Doctor considered this for a moment and said, tell me, is the pain you're experiencing a sharp shooting pain? Yes, the man said, that's it. The doctor paused for a moment. It's simple, my dear friend. Your halo is on too tight. All we need to do is loosen it. Now, before you go writing emails to Dale telling him I told you you could do all sorts of things, look, we all, we all know these people. In fact, sometimes maybe it's us where our halo is just on too tight, where we've become so obsessed with trying to follow the rules and make every checkbox that we miss the point. Simon is one of those people he's so concerned with getting things right he's so concerned with making sure that every box is checked on the way to righteousness that he misses the very living presence of God sitting at his table This is everything as a Pharisee that he's been working for. It's the whole reason why he cares about righteousness. Because they think if they're just good enough, if they could get enough people to be good enough, that God would come back to Israel. And here God is sitting in his presence and he can't even see it. And yet this woman can. Because she is looking, because she knows how much she needs what only Jesus can offer. And because she can admit that, because she's looking for it, she is able to experience the overwhelming forgiveness and grace that is offered and in Jesus find her salvation and her forgiveness. Just like those family dinners all those years ago, the table of Jesus is not a place of exclusion, but one of inclusion. It is meant to welcome us into his family full of hospitality and love. It's a table that has been set and paid for by Jesus himself as the whole season of Lent and Easter reminds us. And it is a table that is embarrassingly and lavishly extravagant. Those who've experienced great love don't find it embarrassing any longer. Because they know its value and power. The only people who are afraid of that kind of love are those who have yet to experience it. And so we find ourselves realizing that life, it comes down to a question of how you see yourself in the world. Have you understood the depth of your own need of forgiveness? Because those who have been forgiven much will love much. And those who have been forgiven little will have little love. Amen.